Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with A.J. Baim about his new book, White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. On a follow-up episode, we will discuss with A.J. his bestseller, Dewey Defeats Truman. A.J. is the author of seven books, including several bestsellers. He is also a regular contributor to The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. A.J. Baim, welcome to That Said. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I like to start these interviews by asking the author to tell us something about themselves. And if you would oblige us, I'd sure appreciate it. Sure. Uh, my name is A.J. Baim. I live in Northern California. I'm excited to report that it is my 20th wedding anniversary today. So there, Congratulations. There will be, we'll be celebrating in the Baim household. And um, yeah, I've been writing now professionally since 1997, and it's uh, all that I've ever wanted to do since I was seven years old. And what has your writing been about? What do you focus on principally? Uh, well, it's evolved quite a bit. So when I was seven, I wrote my first book called Thunder, and I still have it. It's on my bookshelf. It's about a horse race. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, I ended up in academia writing a lot of uh, study. I was in the English department at NYU, and I wanted to get into books. My first book was a sports book called uh, Go Like Hell, Ford, Ferrari, and Their Battle for Speed and Glory at Le Mans. And I thought that a sports book would be a good way to start because it was a, uh, something that somebody like me with my background could break into. But ultimately, I wanted to write about um, more serious matters, politics, presidential history, and ultimately about this um, civil rights leader, Walter White, who we will be talking about today. Yeah, and you had really, maybe I'll call it this way, a sort of a breakout book in The Accidental President, yeah? Uh, that's correct, yeah. That book, you know... <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this on your show, but I do a lot of the uh, thinking of how I'm going to organize my books and what they're going to be about in a bathtub. And I once read that one of the famous scientists who helped create the atomic bomb, he was Hungarian and I forget his name, figured out how to split atoms, you know, while sitting in a bathtub. It's an amazing place to sit and think. And I just remember vividly that book coming together in my head that it would be, uh, I wanted to write about Truman. My father was a big Truman fan. And uh, I realized that there was a new way to look at Truman just by writing about the first four months of his um, administration being the most action-packed in any president's term ever. And it's a great book. Well, thank you. So this book, White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. Tell us about how you came to write this book and broadly what it is that you were trying to accomplish by it. Okay, well, I first came across Walter White my first year of graduate school, uh, studying the Harlem Renaissance. I knew all the way back then, in 1995, that um, I wanted to write about the New York history in the 1920s in Harlem and in Greenwich Village and how black life was different from white life. And so, you know, for 25 years or something like that, Walter White has been on my mind, and he ended up being a minor character in three books in a row that I wrote. So he was a minor character in uh, The Arsenal of Democracy. He was a minor character in The Accidental President, and then Dewey Defeats Truman. And so for three books in a row, I kept doing a little more research and just wondering, the more I would learn about Walter White, the more shocked I was that people don't know who he is, and the more shocked I was at just how incredible his life story is. You write in the introduction of this book, many readers will find 
this book's occurrences impossible to believe. Events you may think could never have happened in the United States of America. For others, this story will hit closer to home. The difference between these two readers is exactly what White Lies is about. Black, white, and the shades in between. So can you flesh that out for us? It's an interesting introduction. Sure, it says a lot, and there's a mystery in there, and hopefully people will read that and say, well, I want to find out more. But it's a great question. Here's the deal. The subtitle of this book is The Double Life of Walter White and America's Darkest Secret. And what we have here is a character who lived a double life throughout his life. He lived as a white man. He lived as a black man. Uh, and the first half of the book is really dedicated to him doing these undercover investigations where he was posing as a white man in the South. And we're going to get to that uh, later, I think, in our talk. But he was a crime fighter. And in talking about uh, those incidences, you know, those are, I don't want to call them adventures, but um, these 44 investigations undercover that Walter White did as a younger man, uh, it goes deep into a very dark side of our country's history that I myself, and one thing I hear most specifically from white readers is I was a history major and I didn't know anything about any of this, uh, about this past of racial violence in American history. And then there, there's black readers who are going to come to this material and think, well, of course I knew about this, you know, violent racial history. It's touched my family. You know, it's uh, we didn't learn it in school because it was not taught in schools. But uh, it, these sort of stories are passed on through generations in families that had, you know, experienced these kinds of awful things. Which is, in some sense, the foundation of the debate around critical race theory and, and its teachings, because partially people still don't want this taught. It's true. Uh, and, you know, we can get into I get that question asked all the time. Uh, should you know what we're talking about? We'll use the word. 44 undercover investigations that Walter White did, posing as a white man, investigating lynching crimes, racial murders, things that many of these instances, people, it amazes me today, uh, the, these cases that Americans just don't know about. Yeah. So we're going to go into them in a minute. But before we do, tell us a little bit about Walter White, his early life. When was he born? Where was he raised? Who were his parents? Um, Walter White was born in 1893, and he was born the son of two parents who came from enslaved families. So his parents were of the last generation of Americans who could talk about the slave era from memory. The White family for generations had really been the product of this other part of, you know, American history that we don't talk about a lot. Generations of families born through illicit affairs between slave women who had no rights to their bodies and slave owners who could act with impunity. So through Walter's generations of the white family, you had children being born with whiter and whiter skin until Walter comes along. Um, he's raised in Atlanta, goes to a black school, goes to a black church, raised in a black family. Um, but his skin was white, his eyes were blue, and his hair was blonde. And he came to call himself later the enigma of a black man occupying a white body. And it was interesting, you mentioned in the introduction here about this duality of his being able to be both black and white, but there was a practice at this time called passing, which he passed on. Tell us a little bit about passing, because it's important to understand what Walter Wright could have chosen had he wanted to. 
uh, as a teenager, Walter White, as he's coming of age, he's looking himself in, in the mirror and he knows he has a choice. He knows he could leave home and live his entire life as a white person and nobody would ever know. He has this very important moment in his early life where the decision sort of gets made for him who he wants to be and how he wants to live because he knows he has a choice. Um, can we talk about the Atlanta race riot of 1906 now? or, or should we... uh, Sure. This is, a, I was going to say, it's a funny thing because the New York Times in his obituary said he was, this is their words, a Negro by choice. And that's exactly the choice he made. And, and it came to, you know, sort of the critical juncture in 1906 when he was 13 and the Atlanta race riot and the, the depression of 1906. So why don't you talk us about the economic times of 06 and then it's leading to the Atlanta race riot and how that was so life-changing for young Walter. Sure. Um, Walter's born at a time in Atlanta, which was sort of the capital of the progressive South. Uh, and it was a time relatively in the city itself of peace. You had black people and white people living next to each other as not just neighbors, but good neighbors. Um, the economy was very strong. People were doing well. And there was a, an agrarian depression. So it, all around Atlanta and all around the South, uh, a, a depression set in that slowly but surely uh, put white and black against each other for resources like jobs and food. In the city of Atlanta, that wasn't felt so much where Walter White lived, but it began to close in on the cities. And that's when Walter White is just starting to come of age. So suddenly he's a teenager and the world he's known all of his life is changing rapidly. So from the progressive South where it's peaceful and everything's wonderful, um, where blacks are, are represented in politics to suddenly a series of court cases. Um, notably Plessy versus Ferguson of 1896, and we're, we'll get to that. Um, but also just, this, for the listening, just for the listening audience, Plessy establishes the doctrine of separate but equal. That's absolutely right. So basically segregation setting in, separate bathrooms, separate schools. So Walter White is seeing all of this start to happen in Atlanta in his youth. There's this one moment there. Coming up on the 1906 Georgia gubernatorial election, and you ended up with two characters, each of whom owned a newspaper in Atlanta, who began inflaming white voters to get rid of, of black voters from the ballots, basically making it illegal for black people to vote. And they're trying to, both of them are competing to draw white voters to the polls by outdoing the other in this sort of inflammatory language. And then suddenly you see these reports in these newspapers, some probably true, some false, you know, we can't, we don't know for sure, of incidents of violence between black men and white women. And the city becomes aflame. And so Walter White one day goes out with his father. His father was a mailman, uh, which was a good middle-class job for somebody, for a black person living in Atlanta at that time. And Walter would go on, on the rounds with him through Atlanta and pick up the mail. And on this day, they were warned of some danger, but they didn't think anything would happen. And this is the first chapter of White Lies. Walter and his father see uh, Atlanta riot of 1906 break out. They see seven men murdered, all black. And on the second night of this riot, 
Walter and his father end up on the second floor of their home, looking out the window. And he describes in, in numerous different times at different writings and different speeches, the, the emotion and the, and the fear and the feelings he was having. He's now, I think, 13, uh, seeing this white mob come upon his house. You can imagine him standing there looking out the window, you know, the torches, the flame torches reflecting in his eyes. And as Walter tells the story, his father gives him a gun and he says, don't start shooting until the first member of the mob touches our lawn and then don't stop shooting until you can't anymore. And that is the moment where Walter White makes this decision, who he wants to be. He realizes that uh, this terrible irony that his skin is not different from the color of the skin of the people, this mob that are coming upon their home. Suddenly someone fires a gunshot and this mob takes off and the whites are safe that night. But Walter White comes to this decision that he wants to identify as a black man for the rest of his life and dedicate his life to racial justice. And he says of this time that these were times compounded by fear guilt, greed, humiliation, that the South was developing a psychosis. When I found that quote, I found it in a very random place in his papers at Yale University, uh, handwritten notes describing the Atlanta race riot. And I thought that that word sort of captured it in his mind because it would have been so difficult for him as a 13-year-old to really understand what was happening and why the world had changed so much so quickly. Yeah, it was profound. So 1906 comes and goes. The 13-year-old Walter White makes his choice. And we next sort of encounter him at age 23 in 1916, when the Atlanta Board of Education is planning to eliminate the seventh grade in order to build a new high school for white students only. They had the previous year gotten rid of the eighth grade. Now they're proposing to get rid of the seventh grade. And Walter decides that enough's enough and he's going to spring into action to try to prevent this injustice. So tell us about this age 23 Walter White and really the beginning of his activism. It fascinates me that the beginning of his activism begins with education because the book ends with Brown versus Board of Education, so it ends with education. Plessy versus Ferguson, we mentioned it before, 1896, the Supreme Court issues this ruling as separate but equal. And what that meant was that black and white could have separate schools, separate bathrooms, separate drinking fountains, separate but equal. They were supposed to be equal. So the idea that the Atlanta School Board would try to cancel seventh grade to build a new school for white students in high school, for white students in Atlanta, was really shocking to Walter White and to his friends. By this time, he was working as an insurance salesman in Atlanta. And, you know, he's asking himself, how can separate but equal, issued by the Supreme Court of the United States, have any significance and any integrity if white students have a high school and black students have no school at all? So obviously the idea of separate but equal was a farce. And so he organizes this group around his friends and they appeal to the NAACP in New York. Uh, interesting to note that at this time, very few people would have even heard of the NAACP at that time. And the reason why Walter White did is because 
W.E.B. Du Bois, who edited the NAACP's magazine, was quite famous and was from Atlanta and had taught at the university where Walter White had gone. So he knew, Walter White knew about the NAACP before most others did. It was a very small organization, but he reaches out and that begins uh, his relationship with the NAACP that lasts for the rest of his life. Right. So he asks uh, James Weldon Johnson, who then is the head of the NAACP, to help intervene in this Atlanta miscarriage of educational justice. And did they succeed? What was the outcome of this effort to stop the elimination of the seventh grade? Well, they succeeded. And that turned into the formation of the founding of the first chapter, the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP. And on the back of White Lies, there's a quote about the book from Richard Rose, who today is the president of the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP. But anyway, the real significance is that besides the fact that they saved seventh grade for thousands and thousands of students in Atlanta, is that the NAACP sends down James Weldon Johnson to speak at a rally in Atlanta. And Walter White meets James Weldon Johnson and From that moment on, Johnson is just amazed by Walter White's charisma, his dedication, and he tries to convince Walter White to move to New York and to join the NAACP as like a young executive, an assistant secretary. Um, Very important moment in Walter White's life, obviously, sort of at a crossroads. He goes to his dad and says, Dad, what do you think? What does his dad tell him? Well, very important. First, he goes to his mom. And his mother says, you should not move to New York. You'll be corrupted. Terrible things will happen to you in that awful, scary city. And he goes to his father and his father says, listen, I will miss you desperately if you leave. But this is an opportunity for you to make a big difference in people's lives. And don't be scared. And once you go down this path, never turn back because it's going to be hard. You're going to want to turn back. It's going to be difficult. But this is like this is the issue that's affecting millions of people's lives here in America. And you're a smart guy, you're educated, and you can do something about this. His parents are deeply religious, yes? Yes. And his father says to him, the quote I read in the book was, God will be using your heart and brains to do his will. And he sends young Walter off to the city. He does. So Walter White moves up to uh, New York on a freezing cold day in, I believe it's February of 1918, which is really a critical moment in American history. So it gets there at a very critical moment just in terms of the history of the country, but also of New York specifically. And James Weldon Johnson is there to meet him. It becomes Walter White's mentor, fascinating guy, James Weldon Johnson. I often hear, you know, that question, if you could have lunch with anyone in your life, you know, anyone alive or dead, who would it be? James Weldon Johnson would be a good choice. So tell us a little bit about what is going on in New York. This is like the beginning of the Great Migration, and New York is sort of coming into its own in in many ways. Give us a little context, and then we're going to move to James McCarran. Excellent. Okay. 1918, you have to imagine by this time in Walter's life, the Jim Crow era that started really with Plessy versus Ferguson has really descended on the South, South, the black people are disenfranchised. They can't vote. They're not represented on police forces. They're helpless. And meanwhile, in the North, uh, the industrial revolution is booming. So you've got these giant factories 
where they really need labor, places like Detroit, they're building cars, places like Cleveland and Pittsburgh, where there are iron mills. And then there's New York, which is the capital of everything intellectual. And so it's very important that Walter White ends up specifically in New York and specifically under James Weldon Johnson. And James Weldon Johnson teaches Walter White very on in their relationship that their job is to bring up the race, to organize the black race and get people educated and win, you know, win cases in courts. And, and James Weldon Johnson explains to Walter something very important. And he says that the value of a race isn't just about the wealthy people of that race. It's about the literature that a race produces and instills in Walter White's head very early on that activism and intellectual success can be, can really be one and the same, a complementary to each other. And at this time, the NAACP, which I guess was formed around 1905, is also sort of struggling with the differences of views within the African-American community of uh, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, yes? Yeah, that's correct. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois, if you were going to say there was one person who was, you know, if you were to single out someone whose philosophy was the foundation of the NAACP, it would have been Du Bois. I believe it was 1906 or 1904, Du Bois holds this thing called the Niagara Conference, and he brings all of these black intellectuals together around Niagara Falls, and they start forming an organization, figuring out how they're going to, you know, change the racial destiny of America. And people should understand the vast, vast portion of black people at this time are still living in the South, where they had been during slavery. They're still uneducated. They're still poor, uh, and there's no opportunity for them. And so it's this Niagara movement, it's called, where they start bringing together white and black intellectuals. Finally, they form the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Nobody liked the name, but nobody could think of anything better. And it was very much supposed to be um, biracial. So what it was is it was a gathering of black intellectuals like Du Bois, who was the first black Harvard PhD, James Weldon Johnson, who was an accomplished writer, lyricist, former diplomat, educator, newspaper man, brilliant. And then you had some white people who were serving on the board whose job it was to bring money. And they were people like Mary White Ovington, writer and activist, Joel Spingarn, who had been uh, head of the comparative literature department at Columbia University and was Jewish, which was important because there were a lot of Jews at this time that were supporting causes like these when others weren't. And so that was the formation of the NAACP, but it was nascent, it was tiny, um, when Walter White gets there in the winter of 1918. You said it had like 76 branches and about eight-ish thousand members nationwide. So few people had even heard of it. And, you know, listeners should remember, we didn't have television, we didn't have social media. I don't even think radio existed quite yet, or certainly didn't exist in vast portion of people's homes. So if something like the NAACP formed, there wasn't really a, an easy way to get the word out. Yeah, unless you subscribe to the magazine, The Crisis, which was the NAACP magazine edited by Du Bois, the likelihood is they were a well-kept secret. That's exactly right. And one of the major reasons why, one of the first things that Walter White did when he joined the NAACP was to go on a tour of the South and speak in churches and speak at organizations and just try to recruit and get the word out. That was the only way to really do it because there were very few nationally distributed publications, uh, certainly very few 
nationally distributed publications with black writers. And on that tour, he toured as a, a black man. That is correct. Then we get to February 3rd, 1918. And tell us about Jim McHeron. Walter White now has this routine. He takes the bus from Harlem down to 14th Street in Manhattan with James Weldon Johnson every morning on the way to work. And on this day, I believe it's the 12th or 13th day of Walter White's work at the NAACP, they crack the newspaper and read about this murder of a man named James McElheron in a tiny, tiny town of Estill Springs, Tennessee. They get to the office and they start talking about this case and they spring into action doing what the NAACP usually did at that time. The sort of, you know, their uh, strategy was to write a letter, send it to the newspapers to try to get publicity about this murder of this black man, uh, write a letter to the attorney general in the state, which in this case was Tennessee, and to the governor of Tennessee. And as usual, they would have been successful in getting the word out, but nothing is ever done and no one is held, ever held accountable. And they're sitting there in the office Walter White comes up with this idea that he could go down to Estelle Springs, pose as a white man, and get the facts. And everybody in the office is very concerned because this sounds like a highly dangerous mission, and it was. But Walter White, you know, he's new. He wants to prove himself. And he's successful at convincing everybody, you know, to allow him to do this. And off he goes on the train headed for Tennessee to conduct his first undercover investigation. Um, he gets there. It takes him one day of sleuthing to get all the facts of what had happened to James McElheron, who had been brutally tortured and murdered. Walter White poses as a traveling salesman for the Exilento Medicine Company. And throughout his traveling, he's sending letters and he's sending telegrams back to the offices, explaining in vivid detail what he's doing. And of course, I have access to all of that paperwork and those documents. So when I write about it in the book, it's very, I can write in vivid detail what he's doing, what he's thinking, and what this first undercover investigation entails. And it becomes the manner of his proceeding, and that allows the NAACP to understand what you say is the power dynamics of what was going on in the South so that it could shape its own responsive and progressive strategies. Yeah, that's correct. And so, listen, we can boil that down because I think what you're getting at, we can get get at it very quickly. It's that in Walter White's mind and in the strategy of the NAACP, very different from the philosophy of, say, Marcus Garvey, who appears in the book as well, that there should be no color line, that there should be no difference between black and white, the color of one's skin shouldn't have any effect on how one is educated or how one is represented in law enforcement. Uh, and that these kinds of killings in which no one is held accountable have to stop. I mean, think about it. Very small town, Estill Springs, Tennessee. Very small town. Very few people live there, which meant this murder had occurred in front of a very large crowd of people. So everybody knew who the perpetrators were. And yet no one is held accountable. And Walter White says this is not acceptable. And as you said, he does 44 of these undercover investigations, posing in each of them in different fashions. And I'd like, though, because you say in the introduction, as I said at the outset, that this book will shock some readers. I want to shock some readers by retelling some of these stories. So if you could, let's talk a little bit about a few of them, maybe 
We can start with Valdosta, Georgia, and Sydney Johnson. And in sort of detail a bit, what did Walter find? What was it that was going on and why was it going on? Well, let's talk about what was going on. That case is in 1918, so it's still within Walter White's first year uh, at the NAACP. He realizes that with these undercover investigations, he's onto something. He can make a difference. He can do something that's never been done before, and he can prove himself to these people who he really specs or who are his bosses at the NAACP. So this case happened around Valdosta, uh, Georgia. There was a farmer named Hampton Smith who uh, was well-known to drink too much, and he had black farm hands working on his farm uh, and was known to beat them and not pay them the money he said he would. That was the story. So one day you had one of these farm hands, his name was Sidney Johnson, who basically said, I'm not, we're not doing this anymore. And he shot and killed Hampton Smith, this farmer. Uh, the, the white people of this small community outside the city, uh, they gather, they form, they organize a mob and they go in and there's a massacre all around this area. Numerous people killed and Walter White goes down there to get the facts. And one of the things that happens is he goes into, uh, while he's sleuthing, posing as a white man, he goes into the shop and he has a talk with this shopkeeper. And he later wrote uh, the dialogue of what was said in an article he wrote for American Mercury magazine that came out in 1930. So sometime after, and he described this conversation and what was said in that conversation in that conversation really distills exactly the whole racial power structure of the South of places like uh, rural Georgia here. Basically there was this massacre and no one was held accountable and black people have no one to represent them in, in law enforcement. And they know there's really nothing that they can do. Walter White ends up at this grave site he finds in the woods, this woman named Mary Turner. And this is a heartbreaking moment. And when you talk about shocking readers, I, I will tell you, like, I had to think long and hard, really grueling hours, figuring how much to put in this book, because I didn't want it to be so gruesome that people wouldn't read it. But the story of Mary Turner, I had to tell it. It had to be in the book because it's a formative moment for Walter White. He finds this uh, grave site. There's nothing but um, a tree that is riddled with bullets, and there is, there's an empty whiskey bottle sticking out of the ground with a half-smoked cigar sticking out of the top of the bottle. And that was Mary Turner's gravesite. And she was really guilty of nothing. And uh, she had been eight months pregnant. And I don't want to go too deep into what was done to her, but it was gruesome. And when Walter White found her grave and found out who she was, he was stunned and he went on a speaking tour. He wanted to make her story something of a cause celeb. He wanted people to know about this, to shock people, to get people to do something. And so that's what he did. And at this same time, so the reader understands, in this 1918, 1919-ish period, you've got the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. They were essentially eliminated from existence by Ulysses S. Grant. Then, under Woodrow Wilson and his sort of blind eye toward or outright racism, they resurrect themselves in brutal force. And so we're seeing this transformation that you described in Walter's early life, where things are mostly coexisting to the rise of the Klan and facilitated by uh, the policies of Woodrow Wilson and 
the desire to disenfranchise blacks because at this time, am I not right, AJ, that there were many, many blacks who held public office who had been elected in South Carolina. I think the black population was larger than the white population. And that was just not going to sit well with these white residents. That's true. And and that political power had been completely eliminated in the Jim Crow era, which began in Walter White's youth. And then you have the arrival of the Ku Klux Klan, which was basically Jim Crow paramilitarized. And you have all of these things happening at the same time, Uh, the rise of the NAACP and the rise of the KKK. There's a couple of points I want to make because you brought something important up. Woodrow Wilson in the White House, the first movie ever witnessed shown in the White House was The Birth of a Nation. And this was the first Hollywood blockbuster ever. And it had a very profound effect on our nation's history. The picture painted in that movie was that the KKK of the Civil War era was this wonderful organization that was protecting white, pure white women from black people on the make. That was it. And millions and millions of white Americans really internalized that idea. And that's what the KKK and a lot of populist politicians, white segregationists, they really played upon that whole mentality. And so the modern KKK is born in 1915, founded by a man who was moved after watching the movie, The Birth of a Nation. At the same time, you see the KKK spreading rapidly across the country. You have the NAACP beginning to spread rapidly across the country. Both of those organizations organizing and growing. And in fact, we're headed for quite a clash. Yeah. And I want to, just before we turn to Gladys Powell, I want to have you just give us perhaps one more example. Pick whether you want to do or both, because you can do it quickly. The Red Summer of 1919, the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, because here we're getting, it's expanding. It's not a a one-off murder of an individual, but these are becoming mass murders led by vigilante white organizations. That is true. I think a lot of listeners know about Tulsa in 1921. Um, because it's been in the news a lot. But listeners should also know that there were numerous events such as Tulsa that happened at this time that people don't know about. And if you read the book, you will know about. One of them is the Red Summer of 1919. It surprises me how many people, when I talk about this, have never heard of the Red Summer of 1919. And what that was, if I'm really going to distill it into just a short soundbite here, Basically, you had so give, us, give us a little not to be that short a soundbite because okay. it's important. People have to, have to right. know this stuff. OK, think about this. You have the end of World War One and you have hundreds of thousands of black soldiers coming back from overseas. They had served their country in warfare. They had put their interests aside to serve their country and they had uh, put themselves in the line of fire. They had sacrificed a lot to protect this country in this war that was so-called to make the world safe for democracy, only to come home and find that if you were black and you lived in the South, there was no democracy here in this country. And it was a searing irony and it inflamed a lot of people. So you had all of these people coming back from the war and saying, okay, we earned our patriotism. We earned the rights that should be given to us in the United States Constitution, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, These things say that we have the right to education, the right to vote, 
the right to be protected by police forces, just like white people. And so right at the end of World War I, where you have all of these black soldiers coming back and feeling empowered, you have suddenly this organization called the NAACP that is a place where that sort of power is being organized and distilled and the message is going out. There's a lot of people, white people in the South particularly, and powerful white people who are not happy about that. They wanted things to go back the way they were. They wanted blacks to be poor and uneducated and to use their own bathrooms. Uh, and so you can see this huge conflict coming, and it was predicted by a lot of people, like all of those who were working at the NAACP at the time. They knew there was going to be this burst of racial violence following World War I, and that's exactly what happened. And so uh, during the red summer of 1919, Walter White is traveling the country, posing as a white man, investigating a riot in Chicago, a riot in Washington, D.C., and ultimately a race massacre in Phillips County, Arkansas. That is that it shocks me that people don't know about it today. That was really the climactic massacre of the Red Summer. And what happened in Phillips County, Arkansas in 1919? Uh, what happened was you had a group of sharecroppers. This is a little complicated. It takes me some pages to explain it. But what is a sharecropper? A sharecropper was an economic system that was put into place by wealthy white landowners to try to keep slavery in place, basically, so that farmers could farm land owned by white people and they would split the profits. Only powerful white people basically ripped everybody off and kept huge portions of the American South poor and uneducated. And so a group in Phillips County, Arkansas, tried to organize and form a union and they hired a lawyer. Uh, one day, this organization, they met in a church. And some white officers, showed, white people showed outside and there was exchange of gunfire. Each side said the other shot first. But nevertheless, what you had was uh, a white man killed who, it turns out, was a police officer. But he did not uh, reveal that he was a police officer in any way. He was not wearing uniform, didn't show a badge, didn't identify himself. Walter White came down and investigated this and wrote a searing report juxtaposing the fight for democracy abroad with this idea of democracy here where you had 67 black people charged with crimes because of this massacre and you had 11 people who were uh, put on death row. And this resulted in a very famous 1923 court case in which the Supreme Court found that if you have a case that is dominated in a courtroom by a mob, then due process has not been served. And so this was a formative case in our country's history whereby you can't just take a black person, put him in a court and convict him without having a lawyer present who's actually doing his job. Right. And of the 67 black men charged, you said 12 were sentenced to death and others lengthy prison terms. Remind me how many whites were charged? Zero. And ultimately, all of these prisoners were freed by the Supreme Court of the United States. So I want to talk in a minute about this change of tactics after Moore versus Dempsey, which is this 1923 landmark case, which found that these Arkansas defendants did not receive a fair trial. But I want to pause because she factors importantly into our story, which is Gladys Powell. And I want you to tell us about this, but I want to emphasize something because it bears on the sort of conclusion of your book, which was, you said that the Klan and the raison d'etre 
of the Klan was to protect white women from black men. There was this myth of the aggressive black man going after virginal, pure white women. And that was the mythology that they used to promote why they were doing this. It was that which required them to do this. They wouldn't have done it otherwise if these black men weren't such savages. So the myth went. Do I have that right? Yes. And I think that that whole ideology was fed to America by the movie, The Birth of a Nation. But the most critical moment for me in this book, White Lies, are these scenes where early in Walter White's life, he's conducting these investigations and he's eventually asked to testify before Congress. And what's fascinating to me is that even on the floor of Congress, there were white congressmen defending the act of lynching for this exact reason that you just discussed, this myth that black people were rapists, which Walter White could show statistically was not the case because in all of the murders that were going on, most of them had nothing to do with accusations of rape. But what's most fascinating to me is we have all the dialogue because it's in the congressional record. So we know exactly what these people said. And so when you look back on on the idea, like, can you imagine today uh, white politicians on the floor of Congress defending lynching of black people? Can you imagine that happening today? Uh, It stunned me when I came across this stuff. I knew some of this existed, but that shocked me. And uh, all the documents exist. It's irrefutable. So, uh, and in fact, the whole term lynching, it became a term after Judge Charles Lynch, who I think Lynchburg, Virginia, is named after, who was a guy who, as a judge, essentially gave out sentences that were equivalent to lynching. Yeah. It's sort of. Okay. I I think the deal with Judge Lynch was this whole idea that during the days when America was, you know, a frontier uh, and we had people coming here from Europe, but there really wasn't any government set up. Things like police forces didn't exist yet. We're talking about hundreds of years ago. Judge Lynch had this idea to set up his own form of justice and he set up his own court and he set up his own, you know, to make sure that people who were committed crimes were charged with for them and that there was justice in this lawless land. That's how it began. And I think the term was really co-opted by people who use this sort of justice outside the law because the law didn't exist. It was later co-opted by people to be able to commit crimes, even though there was law. Right. It was a form of vigilante justice. Exactly. So we're going to move forward into Walter White's change of tactics in the aftermath of the Arkansas riot. But tell us for a time out, who is Gladys Powell and what was the nature of the relationship that she and Walter formed? Um, I wanted this book to be really an intimate portrait of this man. And obviously you can't avoid what his family life was like. So he gets to New York. He meets this woman named Gladys Powell and he's married and they have their first child and then they have their second child. Uh, But during these years, Walter White starts to become very, very famous. And his wife had ambitions to be on the stage and they were never realized. So it's very quickly after he gets married and with the birth of his first and second kid, He's stuck in a bad marriage with a very unhappy wife. Walter White was not a perfect gentleman all the time. He was highly, highly ambitious. He could be very egotistical. And I think in their home life, it was all about him all the time. 
So uh, even as these things are happening in his career life, the pressure is getting turned up in his home life. Which will enter into the last phase of his life when we talk about Poppy Cannon. So he has this unhappy marriage, but nonetheless, he's still out and about doing everything he can to end racial injustice and not attend so much to the needs of his family. But in the aftermath of Moore versus Dempsey, the Supreme Court case that found the Arkansas defendants did not receive a fair trial, Walter decides that publicity alone is not enough and that the change of tactics he's determined is to fight with attorneys. Publicity and and activism is fine, but it's time to sort of bring the attorneys into the situation. And let's talk about how that plays out. Maybe we can talk about Dr. Sweet and the introduction of Clarence Darrow into the NAACP process. Excellent. So Dr. Ozian Sweet, very successful black doctor living in Detroit. Uh, He's going to move his family into this house on Garland Avenue in Detroit, which was predominantly a white neighborhood. But you have to imagine at this time, mobs and mobs of people are moving into Detroit to work in the factories because the, the American car business is booming, you know, and it's really fueling the American economy for it. They couldn't get enough labor. So Detroit is becoming very, very crowded. And here you have this black doctor who's financially well off at this point. He's doing pretty well. And he and his wife have a baby and they want to move into this house on Garland Avenue. The first night they get there, um, it's largely a white neighborhood. A mob forms out front. And by many estimates, there is well over 2,000 white people standing out in front of his home the first night he's there. And he has a 14-month-old child and a wife. And this black doctor starts to hear his windows smashing as people are throwing rocks through the door. At some point, a shot is fired and a white person out front is killed. And the police raid the house, arrest everybody in the house, separate the parents from their 14-month-old child. And you can imagine, if, if this were a novel, there, there would be somebody from the NAACP Detroit office writing to New York saying, we must have Walter White, we must have, which is exactly what they did. They said, when we have the documents, they're incredible. This is what's happening in Detroit. There was this man named Dr. Sweet. He was just trying to stay in his home peacefully. We need a seasoned investigator. Please send Walter. Uh, That's almost a word-for-word quote I can remember from the communication. Uh, Ultimately, what this results in is a court case. The suites are going to have to be defended. And they've got these rinky-dink lawyers up there. And Walter White has the idea to turn this into like a big media spectacle. And he decides that he wants to bring in the most famous American attorney in America. And that's how we meet, in this book at least, Clarence Darrow who had such an effect on Walter that he named his son after Clarence Darrow. And it's through that, it's Clarence Darrow who sort of plants the seed in Walter White's head of how the future of the NAACP could be and sort of launches the second half of this book, which is really about uh, fighting on courts and about, most more importantly, about politics. Well, but yes, and Darrow essentially launches the Legal Defense Fund arm of the NAACP, which brought us Constance Baker Motley and soon-to-be Supreme Court Justice Marshall. This was that birthing point in the trial of Dr. Sweet and Darrow. 
And tell us about the trials. What did Darrow do and how did the trial end? Excellent. There's really two trials because the first trial, I believe, was a hung jury. And so they had to have a second trial. And these trials were very, very expensive. And there's no equivalent to what I can think of right now. But basically, the media drew attention to this case like few others. Very soon before this case was the Scopes Monkey Trial. And it was another Clarence Darrow case that sort of was, this was the foundation of the first time where Americans could be riveted by a court case. And Walter White really realized that anybody, black or white, could understand the impulse to defend oneself, defend your wife and your 14th-month-old kid when you look out your window and you see a mob of people intent on killing you. Anybody could identify with that mentality. And in fact, Darrow and the other lawyer, Arthur Garfield Hayes, also a very famous attorney, they they win the case. It almost bankrupts the NAACP, but uh, they win the case. The Sweets are freed. And sadly, while she was in prison, Mrs. Sweet, she gets tuberculosis. She gives it to the kid. They both die. So this is terrible, sad ending to this successful court case that set a huge precedent for our country's history. But, you know, in terms of Walter White's life, it was the exposure to Clarence Darrow and what Clarence Darrow had to teach him that sort of changes his trajectory forever. And changes the trajectory of the NAACP, most importantly. So, and Sweet lives a terrible, lonely life after this. So there is no happy ending. The fact that they win this trial is a Pyrrhic victory, really, for the Sweets themselves. Absolutely. Dr. Sweet later, he lived a bunch more years, but ultimately committed suicide, sadly. Yeah. So this was about 1925. This is going on. And I'd like to sort of jump ahead to 1928 and tell us about Walter's meeting of one Poppy Cannon. Poppy Cannon appears at a party one day. There's a lot of partying in this book. We'll probably touch on it, but as all of this is happening in Harlem, the Harlem Renaissance is going on. And these people, it's the club scene in Harlem is incredible. Uh, the music, the dancing, Walter White's parties were legendary. And it was at one of these parties, it was not at Walter White's house, that he meets Poppy Cannon. This, she's a white woman. Um, she works in advertising and she's a, a budding food writer. And they start talking about food and wine and they have a lot in common. And Walter is really very quickly transfixed by this white woman, which is a very complicated situation because he's a becoming highly successful, becoming highly famous black activist working for the NAACP, married to a black woman. So this was extraordinarily dangerous. Um, yeah, that's Poppy Cannon. And it's not clear at this point what the nature of their relationship is. During this period, Walter White is becoming very famous, and it becomes the subject of what we would today call opposition research. They are looking for anything to embarrass Walter White and undermine his credibility. Yeah, that's true. And especially soon after he meets Poppy Cannon, we'll get into this. James Weldon Johnson is worn out from, you know, the work of running this organization and he announces his retirement. And so suddenly Walter White, still very young, he would have been uh, mid thirties, becomes the chief executive of the NAACP. 
And that's when he really becomes a target of opposition research. Meanwhile, at the same time he becomes chief executive of the NAACP, his father dies in a terrible car accident. Actually, his father's injured, and Walter White goes down to uh, Atlanta to sit with his father in the hospital, and his father dies. Um, and it's at this point that we first see Walter White sort of really off his rocker, and he has a little bit of a nervous breakdown. He's a heavy drinker, and all the evidence suggests that on the train back that he becomes really tanked, somnolent with drink, we might say. And uh, his wallet is stolen. And he gets to New York. His wife is still in Atlanta and uh, he has no money, but he's got a nickel in his pocket to make a phone call. And he calls Poppy Cannon and goes to her home. And the evidence strongly suggests that that's when their physical relationship began. That's 1930. That's right when he becomes the chief executive. And during this time, again, we have an explosion of activity by the NAACP. And I'd like to talk, we have lots more lynchings, lots more massacres of the type that we have been talking about. But something very interesting occurred during this time period, which was the effort by President Herbert Hoover to appoint Judge John J. Parker to the Supreme Court. So this is another escalation of the strategy of the NAA. CP and Walter White. So tell us a little bit about this Parker nomination fight. Okay, it's a fascinating, fascinating chapter. Whole books have been written just about this. So today, in today's world, we're very familiar with the idea that appointments to the Supreme Court are highly political and very touchy. People get very upset, and there's a lot of to do. Back then, it wasn't so much the case. So this is 1930, and Herbert Hoover is the Republican president of the United States, uh, the Republican Party didn't really exist in the South, in the former Confederacy. You have to remember, it was all Democrats down there because they were anti-party of Lincoln since the Civil War. But you saw that in North Carolina, the Republicans were starting to find a foundation. Uh, and one of the people who was behind that movement was a Republican judge named John J. Parker. And when Herbert Hoover won the nomination to become our president, there was an open seat, and so he wanted to reward John J. Parker by pointing him to the Supreme Court of the United States. Walter White gets to his office. It's all the newspapers which report all the country that John J. Parker is going to be on the Supreme Court. And Walter White's got this funny feeling he's going to go fishing for opposition research. And what does he find? That John J. Parker had made not one but two very flagrant statements saying that black people shouldn't be allowed to vote and that white people don't want black people to vote. Black people don't even want black people to vote. He, he even says, if, if I were elected governor using one black vote, I would forego the election. Says something like that. And Walter White's like, I've wanted to get in politics. I've wanted to put the NAACP in politics. I want to be a political powerhouse in a national scene myself. And this is the opportunity to do it. And so this had never been done, that an activist organization should start a rally, a nationwide fight to make sure that a judge did not get appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States. And in fact, they won. Walter White won. And that's what really put him on the scene nationally. It was said at that time that suddenly now Walter White had even eclipsed the kind of fame that James Weldon Johnson had ever achieved. And indeed, was it not true that all of the senators 
who had voted for Parker's confirmation, the NAACP targeted and they defeated all of those pro-Parker senators. That's right. So anybody who had voted to confirm Parker, Walter White and the NAACP brought about a rally to get that guy out of office. It's the same kind of thing that we're seeing with Trump and the Republicans right now. If you oppose something, we're going to come after you. But in Walter White's, uh, this specific example, you could see very clearly the justice behind the political movement to rid anybody who had voted for Parker. And election after election, they succeeded. This was something that was getting black people to the polls. This is something that was getting black people to want to vote and not just for the Democratic Party. They could vote for whoever was going to do the right thing for them. So after the defeat of the Parker confirmation, Walter White is is more famous, really, than ever, and he's investigating all over the country. Marion, Indiana, where there's another horrible event where three people are accused of a crime they didn't commit, and they go to trial and, and the like. But what is interesting to me is Walter White really is becoming, at this point, the consigliere to to presidents. He is, and I think that you said that his apartment was referred to as the Black White House, right? Yes. The pun was obvious, but yes. Yeah. And for the listening audience, we are going to do part two of this interview and talk about AJ's wonderful book of Dewey Defeats Truman. But why don't we jump a little bit forward and talk about, uh, as a tease to our next interview, about Uh Walter's relationship with FDR and then Truman and Walter's sort of transcendence from just the unknown NAACP person to one of national consciousness. Excellent. Now, is it important that listeners understand that right up until, frankly, 1932, if you were Black in America, you voted for the party of Lincoln if you were allowed to vote. That was it. And so it was Clarence Darrow who in a speech in Harlem in 1926 gave this wonderful speech that turned the light bulb on in Walter White's head. Clarence Darrow said, you can't just vote for the Republicans without thinking because the Republicans are doing nothing for you and the Democrats are doing nothing for you. So if you throw your vote away, just voting because that's the way you've done it for generations, it's a mistake. You're going to get nowhere. You have to keep the politicians guessing. Vote for the candidate that is going to do something for you, regardless of party. And so that's what Walter White's political strategy becomes as he's going to launch himself on the national scene. Uh, What ultimately happens is when FDR is voted in 1932, a, a lot of black people liked him because there was a lot of poverty in America. And FDR, as we all know, with the New Deal, was spending a lot of money on helping Americans who, who really needed, you know, help. And so FDR was pretty popular very quickly, and it was really the 1936 election, which was the first time in generations and generations, if ever, where the Democratic Party won more Black votes than the Republican Party. And a large part of the shift of Black power in America was because of Walter White and the inroads that he was making in FDR's uh, White House. He became very close with Eleanor Roosevelt. And Walter White was nothing if not ambitious. He was literally, almost literally, pounding on the Oval Office door saying, listen to me. And ultimately, he was successful. He became very close, first name basis 
with Franklin Roosevelt. And as the war, World War II approaches, there's some very dramatic scenes between the two of them uh, where we can see these historic moments beginning to occur for Black America, such as the founding of the, you know, by executive order of the first law outlawing discrimination in hiring in federal offices, things like that. It never happened. An interesting part of what Walter was doing was at the, at his request and with FDR's agreement, he becomes a war correspondent. And he's going to be reporting back to Roosevelt on what he's seeing. So talk about that, because it was important. And, of course, what happens to his plane and the revelation that he has sort of changes the course of his life, too. Okay, so Walter White, of course, there was all sorts of criticism that you could have of him. But there was one thing that was very clear in that he was as dedicated as a human being could be to his cause, which was the elimination of the color line in America. So when World War II happened, you know, just obviously economic forces, political forces, the military, all of these things are changing very rapidly. And so Walter White gets a war correspondence license, and I have it. It's fascinating to look at because he checks off, you know, hair, blonde, skin, white, race, black. (laughs) He goes overseas to visit uh, war zones in the Pacific Theater and the European Theater to see how democracy is functioning in the military. Uh, and he writes a book about this. And it's a successful book. Um, it continues his message. But one of the things that happens while he's overseas is that he's on an airplane and it crashes. And he has this epiphany in the moment where this airplane crashes that his marriage is not good. And he's in love with Poppy Cannon. He has this image. And so after the war, he decides that he's going to go back and rekindle this love affair that's going to destroy his family, even as as he's reaching you know, new levels of power and fame. And one of the things I think that's important about his reporting is the Second World War has, again, African-American troops. They're still segregated. And he's reporting back to Roosevelt that in the military, this is not separate but equal either. The way the black troops are being treated is far worse than the white troops, which will, I think, lend itself to our discussion of Harry Truman's executive order with respect to the military, which we're not going to spoil. And we'll talk about that in our next book. So anyway, his plane is being shot down as the plane is crashing to the ground. He's like screaming, poppy, poppy, poppy. He has this epiphany, as as you call it. And what happened? He lives, obviously, and he, he goes home. And what does he say to poppy? And what does he say to his wife, Gladys Powell? And How is it received? He goes back to the United States and begins to rekindle this love affair. Uh, Poppy Cannon later wrote a book about him. It's called Gentle Night. And it's full of very, very rich detail that to me was just like, it really enabled me to write about a lot of this stuff in ways that sort of hopefully when you read it, you feel like you're in the room when these conversations are happening. So you can feel what these people are feeling rather than just know what is occurring in these moments. And he confesses to her that he's been in a loveless marriage for 20 years. He knows that if he makes his affair with her public, his reputation could be absolutely shattered. And they decide to keep it a secret, but the love affair uh, rekindles. And it takes basically three years before Walter White decides that he's going to have to leave his wife uh, and marry this woman. And he knows the consequences are going to be extreme because think about it. Through the entire 1920s, there were these 
court cases and arguments on the floor of Senate and this movie Birth of a Nation that black people were out for white women. And here was Walter, who bizarrely was the face of black power, even though he had such light skin that he was going to marry a white woman. The critics were going to be legion. And he makes this decision to do this and marry this woman, knowing full well that it's going to absolutely destroy his reputation, which is a large part why so few people have heard of Walter White today. The interesting quotes you have in the book that I've taken a few of, he divorces his wife, he marries Poppy, they go on this world tour for ABC News, and there's lots of newsreel footage of them together. And when he marries her in 1949, the scandal that breaks and the wave of black resentment is enormous. And you have some quotes here that I wanted to read and then have you comment on. One of the quotes, it says, he is playing right into the hand of the lynchers who have used this as an excuse for their violence, why we've been emphasizing that throughout this discussion. Second, you have a quote that says, it will take 50 years to convince white men that this is not true. And his own sister says, the selfishness is unbelievable. So much for racial pride. Well, you can imagine what it was like for him to go through that experience. But listen, you know, there's what, what's that saying that, our, that mom always teaches us? That, you know, we make our bed and then we lie in it. And so he knew the storm was coming. He, by this time, had already had his first heart attack and he knew he was going to die. And this was how he wanted to die. He wanted to die in love. There's this amazing scene where he returns from this round-the-world tour with his new wife. And meanwhile, he doesn't tell anybody he's marrying this woman. So the shock and the scandal is happening while he's traveling in the world, and they're doing this radio show. But he doesn't know that much about it because, you know, the, the level of media there, it was all reported locally. So he knew when he got back, it was going to be exploding in his face. And he has this dramatic press conferences in his office, and he probably smokes two packs of cigarettes, and he's used to having the most powerful reporters in the country come into the office of the chief executive of the NAACP to interview him. But these were gossip reporters, and they were asking him about his marriage and his personal life. And um, his answers to the questions were were brutally frank. Um, and ultimately, his answer to the main question is exactly his philosophy on race, you know, that he had been expounding his whole life. It shouldn't make a difference whether I am white or I am black and my wife is white or black. But meanwhile, interracial marriage was still illegal in almost half the states of America. And, you know, I think that there's, you know, as a reader, I hope we judge Walter White. I hope we, you know, I say this because today is the 20th anniversary of my wedding. I don't know what I would have done in his position. And, you know, that's up to all readers to decide what, you know, our own feeling about what is right and what is wrong. But I don't think he should be. Uh, you know, off the hook. And that's one of the reasons why we chose the title White Lies. It's not just a pun. Uh, you know, he, he, was a, he was a man with faults. Hmm. Nobel Prize winner Ralph Bunch said of Walter White after he passes away at age 61 in 1955, that he was a man whose life in fuller measure than of any I have known was devoted to making American democracy a complete and equal reality for the black as well as the white citizen. He lived that struggle for three decades. In a symbolic sense, he was that 
struggle of our times. That's a wonderful quote. I put that obviously in the introduction because what setting out what I wanted this book to do is sort of capture the entire story of race in our country through the life of one man who was living both sides. That's what I was hoping to accomplish. I think when the New Yorker reviewed the book, that's what they said. They said that you could tell the whole story of racism, race and racism in America through this one man's story. But another point I want to make is this whole idea that he was after justice in American democracy. There's a subtitle here, The Double Life of Walter White's F. White and America's Darkest Secret. And I think a lot of readers, including one very prominent critic, read that as that lynching is America's darkest secret. But there's a whole nother level in which this book works, if you think about it. The whole idea of Walter White's quest for justice in America was about the enormous gap and the hypocrisy between people who call themselves patriots and wave the Constitution of the United States and what America in reality really was. And we can still feel that in some sense today. Read the 14th Amendment. Read the 15th Amendment. I can read it to you right now. Uh, it, it had no basis, in fact, whatsoever, even though people, patriots at that time, you know, were like, yay, Constitution. That's America's darkest secret as well. Yeah, and I think you have pointed out how important a role Walter White played in trying to bring that justice and also educate us through his reporting to this secret that life is not as the white media pretends it is. Absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So the book is White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. A.J. Bain, thank you very much for spending the time with us, more importantly for writing the book. And I look forward to speaking to you again when we talk about the 1948 presidential election. Dewey beats Truman. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.